All right, we're going to pick up in John 1. You guys excited for the word this morning? Hallelujah. John chapter 1. We're going to get all the way through verse 3 this morning. It's going to be majestic. We've been working so slow, but it's been good. All right, let's pray. Lord, we love this word. We love your scriptures. It's such a gift to us. Lord, through many valleys, to many hard places, this word has sustained us. Lord, we cling to your promises, to your truth. So as we look to it this morning, God, we don't look to it just out of tradition, but we look to it from a place of expectation, from reverence and desperation, Lord. We need your voice in our lives. We need your voice in our lives. Lord, teach us to better honor your word as we study it, to apply our minds, to apply our attention spans, Lord. We love you. We thank you for this gift. Guard my lips this morning, Lord. Use me, Lord, as a vessel. And it's in the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen. Well, I told you last week that I've been reading a lot um, from an old pastor named A.W. Pink. Um, he was not really all that well-known during his life. He died in 1952, and no one really made much of a fuss about it. But he had been publishing a magazine called Studies in Scripture, and many of the greatest pastors and preachers of the day were reading him. And so he wasn't really all that popular, but everybody who knew anything was reading him. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know who we love, was one who read Pink regularly. I actually enjoy a man of God who wasn't very prominent in his day, but who was faithful to continue to proclaim the message because it's easy to, um, it's easy to, to, to want to preach when everybody's applauding you. It's something different when a man preaches faithfully, even without the accolades of men. We'll all fail in this life. You know that perfection is not attainable, but faithfulness is. Some of us will live faithful. And so I was reading an article anyway that Pink wrote in that magazine, and the article was called The Solidarity of God. He published it in a book later, The Solidarity of God. He suggests that very few in our day spend time thinking about the awe-inspiring, worship-provoking grandeur of God. He challenges the reader in this article to ponder God's solidarity in eternity past. Our universe has a beginning. We know that from scripture and we know that from science that our universe began. God existed infinitely before our universe began. Infinitely before the universe, God was. A river that has always flowed. It has no fountain flowing in it. God just was forever. Solidarity before creation, before the heavens, God already was in perfect union, in communion with Himself. God was perfectly sufficient before the heavens were birthed or any angelic being was created. The God had dwelt alone and needed nothing. If God needed the heavens, the heavens would have been created long ago and would be eternal. But God needed nothing. God did not need the praise of angelic beings. God did not need to create us. God was not lonely. By definition, God cannot be lonely. He's not a needy God. 
He did not create out of need. Therefore, we can add nothing to him. He's perfectly sufficient. He existed in three persons, forever in perfect harmony. What was it like when the Father and the Spirit and the Son dwelt alone forever? What kind of perfect bliss did they experience? What perfect unity and harmony and pleasure did God have in God? Before there were angels to sing his praise, before there was an earth full of created beings to shout for his attention, God in solidarity was perfectly pleased in God. Self-sufficient, self-contained, self-satisfied. God's choosing to create did not come from a place of need, but he created out of the overflow of his goodness. He did not make us because he needed fellowship. He had perfect fellowship within himself. He made us so that we might enjoy his glory. He made us because in himself there was perfect, blissful harmony and pleasure, and he created so that creation could see his beauty and enjoy his own perfect glory. He made us that we might testify to his wondrous natures and works. He made us that we might witness his profound beauty and to be satisfied in it. The old catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Your chief end, your chief purpose in life. Oh, you want to talk about a purpose-driven life? Let me tell you about a purpose-driven life. Your chief purpose is to gaze upon the beauty of God and to respond to his glory with heart-wrenching praise. And it's only there that you'll be satisfied. You keep living self-centered. You keep being so concerned with your needs and your wants, and you'll always be scratching and calling for more. But when you recognize that your very base purpose is to gaze on him and to respond with praise and to enjoy him, then you'll know life. But until you have that worked out, everything else will be a mess. You are to enjoy the endless sweetness of the God who created you. His infinite goodness. Your end, your chief end, your chief purpose is to exalt that God, this God, and find pleasure in him. The fullness of pleasure in the Trinity. John, as he writes, he wants us to see that Jesus who walked amongst humanity was the same Jesus who dwelt in eternity with the Father and the Spirit forever. Jesus is holier, he is mightier, he is grander than we have even begun to imagine. Jesus is limitless, he is perfection, he is satisfied in God forever, yet he stoops to wash my feet. John wants your mind to be boggled that he would bleed for you. Very much where John is going here. So let's read. John 1, we're going to read all the way through verse 3. It's going to be wonderful. (laughs) Woo! In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. 
and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, quickly, let's consider the gospel themes as we begin to approach this prologue uh, at a little deeper rate. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience. He's continually showing um, how Jesus as Messiah fulfills Jewish prophecy. And so from Matthew's perspective and his gospel, Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah, the king. Mark most likely wrote to a Roman audience, and Mark shows that Jesus is the servant of humanity, bearing on his back our punishment, again, stooping to wash our feet. And so Matthew says, look, he's the king, and Mark says, look, he's the servant of all humanity. Luke showed us perfectly that Jesus is the son of man. He was like us. He hungered and thirsted and bled and cried and wept. Luke says, look, he's truly the son of man, and John says, oh yes, but look, he is truly the son of God. Perfect divinity. First week, we discussed the phrase, in the beginning was. We saw from the text and from the overarching um, teaching of the scriptures that, that Jesus did not become, he did not begin at the beginning. He always was. When the Pharisees say to him, you are yet 30 years old, and yet you say you know Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Ego and me, I've always been. So first week, we discussed the eternality of the Son. And the second week, we discussed the, the title, the Word, Logos. Why did John call Jesus the Logos? And we said that From Jesus' teaching, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words are revelatory. They expose the inner hidden thoughts of a man. And so God did not remain silent, but he spoke to us through the person of Jesus. The invisible God of the universe spoke a word in the man, Jesus Christ, and revealed his own inner thoughts and nature and character. We know what God is like because we have seen Jesus. And this week, we want to pay a little closer attention to the next few phrases. The word was with God, the word was God, and the word created all things. First, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. So in the beginning, he was eternal. He didn't have a beginning. He was in the beginning, and he was with God. God. The Greek word here for with is pros, and it communicates that the word, this person Jesus, was in the presence of the Father forever. Forever the word dwelt in the glory of God. Forever Jesus was in the Father's presence from eternity past, for as long as your mind could possibly imagine history. It just keeps going and going infinitely forever. Jesus was perfectly in the glory of the Father. Further, the idea of Jesus being with God, the Greek concept is sometimes translated as he was toward God. 
sometimes translated that way. And so the, the concept is not just that he was with God in God's presence, but the concept is that he was face to face with God, facing towards God in an intimate union. He had perfect fellowship and communion with God forever. Notice in John 1.18, we read this verse last week, no one has ever seen God, the only God. He who is at the Father's side has made him known. John 1.18, he's, he's not just in God's presence, he's at the Father's side. Now watch how the NIV translates this, because they're trying to draw out, again, the theme that's in the text. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The translators, again, are working to pull the theme out. It's not just that he was with God, but he is faced toward God. And it's not just that he's faced toward God, but he's in the closest relationship possible with the Father. No disunity, no brokenness, no fraction. Perfect, closest relationship with the Father forever. The pre-incarnate Christ had perfect intimacy with the Father. The fact that the Word was with God draws distinction between the two persons, between the Father and Son. He is clearly a separate person from the Father because He's with Him, toward Him, in union with Him. You want to be able to recognize and clearly acknowledge when some begin to teach falsely the nature of God. And so, for instance, there's a teaching called modalism that's been around forever. Modalism is an old heresy, but it's constantly regurgitated in heretical movements. And so, for instance, the Pentecostal oneness will teach modalism. And what modalism says is essentially this, that, that there's one person sometimes called Unitarianism. There's one person, and the person of God, he kind of just changes modes. So the Father becomes Jesus, and the Jesus becomes the Spirit. And they teach that, that, that God just kind of changes his mask, and there's only one person. And I, I want you to be able to acknowledge that uh, that is never what Christianity taught. The Father did not become Jesus, and Jesus did not become the Father. They were in eternity past with one another. Distinct persons dwelling in perfect harmony. So first, John says that the Word was with God. Again, that idea toward God in closest relationship with no fraction, perfect intimacy and union and harmony and beauty. Yet, John says next, the word was God. So the word was with God, with the Father, and the word was God. Now the language here is very precise. The word was theos. The word was God. There is no other way to interpret what John is saying here. Honestly, John writes, In the beginning, the word was with God. Prose in perfect harmony with God. And this word was theos, was God. 
This Jesus who walked the earth, ministered to the lame, healed the sick, told storms to sit down, called demons to flee, told the dead, you just get up out of the grave and walk again. This Jesus was theos. Never let any man or woman in their heretical thinking and thoughts teach you that Jesus was less than God. He was always God. And I mean it so much that my voice has to squeak like a 14-year-old boy going through puberty. watch tower society and the new world translation which is not a translation by the way it's really not um we'll we'll insert the word a the word was a god and and god becomes a little g and many heretical movements will teach you that that jesus is a created lesser being that God created through. Jesus is not God. He's a God with a little g. And and even in Mormonism, we'll teach things similar, that Jesus is becoming God as he serves faithfully. And we need to stand up with conviction in our hearts and say, no, he always was God. The blood shed for me, that DNA screams theos. It was God's blood that washed me. It wasn't the blood of a man. It was the blood of the divine one. He is not a God with a little g. He is not Michael the archangel. He is not the brother of Lucifer. No apostle ever taught that. He is Theos, a distinct person from the Father, yet God with the Father, perfectly in union with the Father. One being, three persons. That's always what the church taught. I understand that that boggles your mind. Can you imagine that, that your creator can't be contained in your thinking? By God, you're so smart. Let me just read to you what's called the Carmen Christi. This is the earliest hymn we have from the church. Something, some, say, some say somewhere around 10 years after Jesus' death, the church was already, resurrection, the church was already singing this song. Paul used this song as a sermon analogy in Philippians chapter 2, the same way that we sometimes read a hymn and then teach from it. Philippians chapter 2, the earliest hymn we have from the church. He, who though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That phrase there means he didn't count equality with God as a thing that he had to hold on to. The Greek literally communicates the idea. He has equality with God, but he doesn't hold on to it for his own benefit. But rather, he empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by coming obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This hymn is quoting Isaiah 54, where the prophet said that every knee would bow and tongue confess allegiance to Yahweh. And so the early church sang a song that went like this. 
He was in the exact form of God. But he emptied himself, humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death to serve us. And in response, the Father exalted him and gave him the name that was above all names. So that at his name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess allegiance. The early church said he was God from eternity past. Yet out of love for humanity and obedience to the Father, he emptied himself. That's always been the gospel. The Nicene Creed didn't make this up. Always been the gospel. Why are y'all trying to make me sweat? So John continues, he was in the beginning with God and was God. All things were made through him and without him not anything was made that was made. This Christ Jesus who hung on a tree for us made us, made creation, made the tree, spoke creation into existence. He is the person of the Trinity who created everything that ever came into existence only came into existence through him nothing would exist without christ he did he created he did not become christ was not one of creation he was the one who created he's not a created being like us and john is laboring to show you the distinction the divide between creator and the created jesus is creator not created we'd really do well to think through the creator-created divide. In many ways, living a life of faith is all about acknowledging my createdness. Living a life of faith says I'm not in control, but I trust him who is. Living a life of faith says my life's not about me. He is the center of the universe. Living a life of faith says, though you slay me, I will trust you. Living a life of faith says, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when everything seems to be crumbling down upon me, I recognize that I am not my own, but I belong to the one who holds the universe in his hands. I trust that he'll finish with what he started. And our culture is trying to be creator. Our culture wants to decide who can live and who can die. Our culture says, we'll eradicate other cultures in, the, in Europe. We'll eradicate Down syndrome by slaughtering every child with Down syndrome in the womb, trying to be creator. You're not creator. Our culture says, make your own future. Forge, forge your own path. Be what you want to be. You're not your own creator. You didn't design yourself. You can want to play NBA all day long, but ain't not a one of you over 6'4 in the room. <laughs> Our culture says it's all about you after all. Manipulate and strive and press. Believe what you want to believe. Live according to your own truth. What's your own truth? I don't get to tell a police officer my truth was I was going 35. I know because I tried. <laughs> Faith is about acknowledging my createdness and trusting my creator. I am created. John wants us to know that the eternal logos of God who was in unique, intimate relationship with the Father created all things. Remember Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him... 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. What does Paul tell us in Colossians? He is not merely a man. He is not merely a prophet. He's not a good teacher. It's incredible that church will say, or that our culture will say, Jesus is just a good teacher. We need to go back to the old C.S. Lewis argument. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic, but he ain't just a good teacher. not just a prophet. So it's not just a prophet who was before Muhammad. He was the preeminent one. He is the Lord of all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does that mean for you? Well, If before the heavens or the earth, before our universe began, God existed, perfectly satisfied within the union of the Trinity. If the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existed eternally in pleasure and in peace and in joy. And if the Son created us, not because God needed something, but only to witness His beauty and to enjoy it to share in his glory. If those things are true, then your life will only make sense as you learn to worship. The health of your life, the health of your family, the health of your marriage is all established upon the health of your worship. Everything about you and again, I'm, I'm picking on modern culture with the seven steps to be a better person, eight ways to be a better Christian. Write a book about how someone could be better in four steps, and you're going to make a lot of money because we just want six ways to be fulfilled. And I'm telling you that all of it is for naught. There's one step to be fulfilled. Surrender your life to Jesus. Acknowledge the glory of God. <laughs> Exist in a state of worship. It's a shame it's a shame that the church has left devotion. Remember, we keep talking about this. The church has to return to devotion. I want to help you for just one more moment. I'm just going to really help you this morning. If you want a healthy marriage, have a healthy worship life. It's crucial in your marriage that you acknowledge that you're not the center of the universe. It's crucial in your marriage that you acknowledge that you're not always right, but that God's holy standard must govern your relationships. It's crucial in your marriage that you don't look to your spouse as the source of all your strength and happiness, but you look to God and you, you have relationship with your spouse out of the overflow of your intimacy with God. If you want a healthy marriage, let's start with healthy worship. On our culture screams, teach us to handle our money. You want to have a healthy financial life, learn to worship. Otherwise, money will be your God. 
And you'll live always scratching for more, selfishly desiring wealth, hoarding all of your goods. But in God, in a place of worship, I'm content to bless others. I'm content to steward well. I'm content to tithe. I'm content to save for an inheritance to my children. The only way I can handle money appropriately is to live a life of worship. You want to win your fight with anxiety and depression and sorrow? I know what it's like to live a life of depression and sorrow. Learn to worship. Learn to stop looking down at all of your problems. Stop looking down saying, my life is meaningless. Woe is me. And start looking up and learn to have the deepest desires of your heart satisfied in relationship with God. Say, what do I mean, Caleb? I'm not against going to a counselor. I think counselors are really healthy. Don't hear me say that. But, but along with going to a counselor, try going to your closet and try shutting the door and try putting your face in the ground. I like to put my face in the ground and try opening your palms and just to begin to acknowledge him. You're worthy. You're wonderful. You satisfy. Just begin to confess his beauty and see if the presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't fill that closet. I'll give you one step to a healthy life. Bow your knee. And not just once. What a shame. What a shame in Western Christianity. Come to the altar one time and you've got the t-shirt and go away. No, I'm telling you, bow your knee every day. Daily devotion to God. Systematic devotion to God. What a shame. I'm just, you just let me yak because that's what I get paid to do, I think. Um, I'm teasing. Um, a hundred years ago, the statistics or something like this, this isn't my notes, but I'm, I'm pretty much right. I can tell you, I'm always pretty much right. You can ask my wife. Um, it's something like this. A hundred years ago, the average Christian missed something like one or two Sundays a year of worship. Today, in our polls and our studies, we call twice a month attendance regular attendance. And Hebrews says, don't neglect the gathering of the saints. And you say, why? Because worship matters. Corporate worship matters. There are times where I, you guys know, I'm, I, don't, I don't feel the need to hide this. There are times where I'm struggling and I'm, I'm tired. I got four kids, dude. You know what that's like? Um, you're like, what is my purpose in life, God? It's just diapers and diapers and diapers and diapers and diapers. And then every time one, you know, has a dirty diaper, I'm like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. My stomach hurts. Your turn. <laughs> I smell a dirty diaper and I'm like, oh, I can wash the tissues. Yeah, I can wash the tissues. No, there are times I come in and I'm like, I'm, I'm really struggling and my, my heart is downcast. And as the worship begins, sometimes your singing like washes me. I feel washed by the worship of the saints. And I begin to, I'm able to say to my soul, why are you downcast? Bless God. And it's why the worship team, our worship teams are such a gift to us. Because many times they, it's like they, our heads are downcast and they pop us in the chin and make us look up again. And you say, what do I do, Caleb? How, I'm, how do I get out of depression and sorrow? Just start with church attendance. It was a big deal 100 years ago. It's still a big deal today. And I'm not saying that because our church attendance is low and we need more people in the season. Our church attendance is pretty good, man. I'm saying that because it's good for you to fellowship with the saints, to hear the saints sing, to hear the gospel proclaimed, and to reposture your heart in a place of worship.
I understand that getting to church can be hard. Again, I have four kids. But you need to make it a discipline. You really do. Your kids need to see you going to church every day. Some of you guys are like, my kids are out of the house. Now I can just vacation. Your grandkids need to know that church is important to you. We need to hear the words of Hebrews. It says, don't neglect the gathering of the saints. You can say, oh, I sing songs every Sunday. And again, I would say, what John is teaching us here is that worship is not just about singing songs. It's about casting my eyes upon the eternal perfection and union and beauty of an infinite God. Allowing my heart to enjoy him. Remembering that though I am a sinner, he died for me. Remembering that that eternal, perfect God adopted me, grafted me into his family and calls me son. To remember my inheritance. To remember that there's a day quickly coming when Jesus will return on the clouds of heaven and all things will be set right. And on that day, he will embrace me as son and lover, his bride. To remember that my life is not just a going through the motions and a plodding along. My life is being wrapped up up in the communion of the Trinity. God created not because he needed you, but he created to grab you and bring you in to his own fellowship and allow you to be crushed by joy. Quit living like life's about you, man. Worship team, if you'd come. Unless you guys want me to sing today, because I'm ready. I've been practicing all week. I'm ready. In conclusion, I want to ask you as a church, as a body, to make me a promise this morning. I want to ask you to never allow a low theology of Jesus to settle in this house. I want to ask you to always be thinking of his grandeur, of his majesty. I want to ask you to always be meditating upon his glory and his power. When challenges arise, when sickness arises, I want to ask you to, in faith, rise up and trust him. I want to ask you to allow the cross to bear its full weight of glory upon our lives and to crush us with its wonder. I want to ask you to really worship not just sing songs and go through the motions. We've had plenty of good songs. I want our hearts to rise up with adoration. Sometimes I pray, on, again, we, we try to pray for the body on Saturday nights. So sometimes on Saturday nights I pray, Lord, I pray that we would give the throne room a run for their money tomorrow morning. I pray that the angels of heaven would have to sing a little louder because we're outdoing them here. I don't think we've gotten that close yet, but maybe one day. Altar team, would you guys get in place? You can go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. First, 
If you're here this morning and you would say, man, I don't really know anything about Christianity. I don't know anything about the church or I don't know anything about the gospel. Or maybe you would say, I've been to church my whole life, but I've never really participated in the cross. As we prayed over communion this morning, we said that in the blood of Jesus, our guilty consciences are cleansed. It's a fact of humanity that every person who walks the earth has made horrible mistakes, great mistakes. Every one of us, we've done things that we wish to God we never would have done. And so we all walk around with a guilty conscience, maybe things you did as a teenager. Maybe sexual sin. Maybe men, it was pornography. Maybe women, it was an affair. Maybe it was a drug addiction or you stole money or you lied and cheated. So maybe you're just a bitter gossip and you're like, I just gossip all day long. But you carry a guilty conscience. And the world will tell you, just forget about it. The past is the past. So you try to suppress it, try to push it down. But you put your head on the pillow at night and it's still nagging. Guilty conscience. I want to tell you this morning that there is a way to be free from that. I can't make the past go away. But I can promise you that your guilt has been totally born upon the back of Jesus. And that the blood of the Lamb would wash your conscience clean. I am still cognitively cognitively aware of the mistakes I've made. I, I, I remember them. But they have no bearing on my life today. Because the blood of Jesus has the greatest bearing on my life today. When, when he was put on the tree, the scripture says, Jesus says in the scripture in John, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. It wasn't that he was caught in the garden and tied down and he couldn't get away. He allowed sinful men to pierce his skin, to beat his back, to crush his skull with a crown of thorns. And he bled. And they hung him on a tree naked. What humiliation. And as as his body hung there, it was not, he did not submit himself to that because he had a guilty conscience. His conscience was clean. He lived perfect. He had no punishment to bear. He did that so that you could be cleansed. He did that so that your conscience would be clean. He did that so that when you stand before God on the last day, all you'll hear is forgiven. Welcome. Every person will stand before God. Life is quick. It's fleeting. It's passing. It's but a breath, the scripture says. Tomorrow's not promised. There's a day coming when you'll stand before God. And you will either hear guilty or forgiven. It's the only two options. No one makes it to heaven because they lived perfect. You only make it into God's eternal glory because you live forgiven. So this morning, I want to say to you very clearly, listen to me. Listen to me very clearly. Your eternal future is not about what you did last night or yesterday or last week. It's only about whether or not you will bow your knee to Jesus today. You are not kept out of God's presence because you messed up. You will be kept out of God's presence because you refuse to surrender to the gospel of Christ. So this morning, the altars are going to be open. I want to ask you to come. We'd love to pray for you. You can leave here today aware of your mistakes, but washed of the guilt. You can leave here today sure that when the gavel falls, all you hear is, welcome my son or daughter. You can leave here today washed by the blood of the Lamb. 
And if you walk out of here in your sin, you walk out of here in your rebellion, you walk out of here continuing to be your own God. It's at your own risk, man. You'll never be able to say, no one ever told me. I'm telling you now, mercy is available this morning. As we prayed this morning, there were a few words, prophetic words, words of knowledge that we felt. One was that someone was struggling with an autoimmune issue. If you're struggling with any kind of autoimmune issue, we believe God's here to heal you this morning. There was a word that someone may be struggling with infertility, like really struggling with infertility, and maybe even lost a child in the last month or so, and, and your heart's broken and crushed. We want to ask you to come to the altars this morning. We won't make a show of you in any way. We just want to pray for you and believe that God's here to heal. As always, if there's any other sickness, I, I want to say that as we talked about sorrow and depression this morning, if you're struggling with that today, we want to, we want to pray that the Spirit would break that off of you. So the altars are officially open. I want you to come now. I don't want you to hesitate. I don't want you to be embarrassed or bashful. The altars are open. Come now and receive prayer. Worship team, would you lead us? Come on, come receive the Spirit. Come press in. Worthy is your name. Hallelujah. Jesus, you deserve the praise. Don't deny him the worship he's due this morning. Worthy is your name. Worthy is your name.
Hallelujah. Somebody say in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Well, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. We love you so much, man. The altars are going to stay open. The worship team is going to hang for a minute, so you don't have to rush out of here if you need ministry. But we just want you to know we love you. We want you to know that we really want you to take your kids home because I got enough on my own, okay? So take them home. But we pray you have a wonderful week. And we'll see you on Wednesday night for prayer at 7, youth at 6.30. 